This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, growing global concern about the outbreak of coronavirus in China and its spread to other countries. What do we need to know about this virus and how concerned should Canadians be? Also, what are your rights at the border when it comes to digital privacy? Border guards can search your phones and electronic devices, but there are limits to that power. Plus, it's been 50 years since Canada embarked on the process of transitioning to the metric system. We only got about halfway, though. So why did we make the switch, and why do we have kind of a mishmash hybrid system? For now, the World Health Organization holding off on declaring a global health emergency around this coronavirus, but they're keeping a close eye on the situation. Uh, as our officials in Canada and in other countries this week, the Centers for Disease Control confirmed a case of this in the United States, in Washington State. And maybe it's a, a case of when, not if, we're going to have one in Canada. Uh, there have been hundreds of, of infections, primarily in China, but in other countries. Uh, and I believe uh, just over a dozen people have died as a result of this. Now, this news out of China today, not sure what to make of it. This is ominous or maybe just a, a case of... Chinese officials being overly cautious, but uh, they basically quarantined the city of Wuhan. No one will be allowed to leave the city um, from 10 a.m. on Thursday. There's about 11 million people in the city. So uh, planes, trains are basically going to be shut down. I don't know if you can fully quarantine an entire city, but that's what they're apparently trying to do. So, like I say, not sure what to read into that. But so a lot of people wondering, well, what is this? What, what, what is the virus? What is the concern about this virus? I mean, there's some unknowns here. Uh, it does appear similar in some ways to SARS, and I think we've got the whole SARS situation that we can, or at least hopefully did learn from. And uh, there are probably other viruses that maybe we should be more concerned about, but I think just given some of the unknowns around this, there, there is that, that concern. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Dr. Craig Jenny, Canada Research Chair in Imaging Approaches Towards Studying Infection. He's Assistant Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases, part of the Department of Critical Care Medicine, University of Calgary. Professor Jenny, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, happy to be with you. Um, so this this virus. So why is it called coronavirus? First of all, what does that name mean? Yeah, it's a, uh, sort of a funny background on it. If you actually look at the virus, the structure of it, it looks like it's wearing a little crown. So corona comes uh, from the, the the Latin term for crown. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there you go. No, I not, didn't know not that. Not the beer, but uh, well, that's what everyone thinks. I think yeah, initially. Yeah. Um, okay. So it, that, that's that's what it explains that. Now, what is the nature of this virus? It's a, it's a respiratory illness. We understand. I mean, is this similar to SARS? Yeah, it's in the same family of SARS, uh, as SARS, so it was also a coronavirus. But there's actually a few that infect people, and the really mild ones just give us the common cold. Um, it's really only these, these newer ones, these recent emerging viruses that have caused some big problems. So SARS is one. Uh, there's also MERS, the Middle East uh, uh, respiratory uh, virus, and, uh, and now this new one out of China. 
So what, what's the concern here? I mean, is, 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 and both in terms of how potentially deadly this virus could be or, or maybe just what we don't know about it. What, what is it that, that has officials concerned? Yeah, it's mostly what we don't know about it. So the initial numbers so far look like it's less deadly than SARS, but it is still now moving between people, and it does cause significant illness. So just because it doesn't kill you doesn't mean it's not a problem. I mean, nobody really wants to get infected with something that will put them in the intensive care unit. Right. Uh, and I mean, just, you know, the world we live in and people traveling and, uh, you know, China's still yeah. a place where, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, people involved in business who are coming and going, people who are traveling. We had this case of, in the U.S., someone who had traveled to China. So the, these things can spread quite quickly, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there is any way to actually stop this from traveling around the world. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about closing airports or barring flights and uh, just how interconnected the world is. People are still going to get here. And unfortunately, this virus looks like it has up to a two-week incubation period. So you may be infected with zero symptoms, travel, end up in a new place, and then start spreading the virus when, when you get there. All right. Well, I mean, that's concerning. So this, we, I mean, we're hearing today about what seems like um, a quarantine of the city where appears this, this, this uh, outbreak originated. But like you say, I mean, given the, the incubation period, uh, given that, that it's been a while, obviously, since this outbreak, I'm not really sure what, what that's going to accomplish at this point. No, I mean, every little bit may help. It may reduce the number of cases that, that are outside the city, but uh, I'm sure this is also partly uh, just for international uh, display that, that they're doing something. Um, I think we still have a lot to learn, and our, our knowledge of this virus is, is literally evolving every day. As of Monday, we didn't know it could spread between people, so, so we're learning a lot uh, as time goes on here. And with other viruses, I mean, like the flu, the flu virus is just always there and, yep. and it ebbs and flows and, and et cetera, but it's just always kind of there. So the idea that, that we kind of get this new virus or it just seems to come out of nowhere, how does that happen? Yeah, so the, these coronaviruses are, are frequently found in animals, and we think that most of these new uh, virulent coronaviruses, so SARS, for example, originate in bats. They'll bite a small uh, farm or, or food animal, and then that is how humans are exposed to it. So it's moving between various species. So it's a rare event, and it means it's a virus that we have no immunity to. So as this circulates in, in the population for months or years, we may all become immune to it, and, and it'll be less of a concern. But right now, it's a brand new pathogen for us it is so i mean in that respect what what can people do to protect themselves yeah, it's going to sound uh, crazy. I mean, often the low-tech solutions are the easiest here. Uh, number one thing, wash your hands and then rewash them. I mean, all of these viruses, the most common w- route of infection is you're touching a surface somebody else has touched or sneezed on, and then you rub your face. That, that's where people are picking up most of these. Um, avoid crowded areas. Uh, the recommendation from Public Health Canada is if you are in parts of the world where, where this is more common, avoid the open markets or, or markets where there's live animals or or, or or meat being processed at the market. Um, so, so common sense things really at this point. Uh, I also just want to point out that you know we're, we're talking about hundreds of cases in a yeah. in a country with over a billion people. So it's a concern, but this is no need uh, at this point to panic. Right. I mean, and to put things in perspective, we mentioned the flu. I, I think certainly the flu poses risks in its own way. And I mean, you know, for Canadians, we're probably much more likely to be expo- exposed to influ- influenza than this particular coronavirus. 
Yeah, I mean, influenza in Canada already this season has killed more people than this new coronavirus has in total. So, uh, yeah, influenza far more, at this point within Canada, far more dangerous virus. And we really don't change our behavior that much out of fear for, for influenza. So it, it is important to keep these in context. It is, and, and I suppose though at the same time, and it's that balance for health officials and not wanting to needlessly alarm the public, but also wanting to, to be proactive and responsive to this situation. So it's, it's about finding that, that sweet spot, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we, if we are too lax, this will be in our communities and it will be spreading. But by creeping up the surveillance and, and, and looking for people and asking the right questions and knowing at the health centers what to look out for, we can very much limit the spread of this virus within our communities. And you, you mentioned the similarities to SARS. I mean, we, we have that whole experience to draw upon. I mean, hopefully we, we learn the lesson about uh, proper response and international cooperation. Uh, so we've at least got that to guide us. Yeah, I, I think that it's a really important point is that we did learn so much uh, from SARS. Uh, just to, in a nutshell, to put it in perspective, when SARS arrived in Canada, we did not know it was even a coronavirus. We had no idea what we were looking for. We were just screening for sick people and isolating them. Uh, this virus has not even arrived in Canada. Not only do we know what it is, we have the entire genetic makeup of this virus, and we have the test in place in provincial labs so that we can do a cheek swab and tell immediately whether somebody has it. So we are not chasing an unknown. We, we are far better prepared for this outbreak than, than for example, SARS. Right, and, and that still holds true. I mean, if and when we do have a case of this in Canada, that, that doesn't change you know, those underlying facts that you just pointed out. No, I, I agree with you that this is more likely a when rather than an if, um, but we are prepared. Uh, everybody's looking for it. The, the, the hope is that we identify these patients early enough before they, they have sustained spread in the community, and we can then treat them uh, and, and hopefully limit other people from picking up this infection. All right. Well, some important points. Uh, Dr. Janey, appreciate uh, you sharing your expertise with us here today. Thanks so much for this. Anytime, Rob. All right. Take care. Okay. Uh, that is Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor, University of Calgary, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. He is Canada Research Chair in Imaging Approaches Towards Stunning Infection. Uh, so leading expert on this stuff. So we appreciate uh, his insights. So like he says, right, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot we don't know about it. And, and so, you know, with the unknown comes that, that concern. But at the same time, you know, put things in perspective, it does seem less deadly than SARS was. And, you know, for Canadians, look, there are other diseases. I mean, the flu obviously being one that we're probably much more at risk from. But this is still something to, to keep an eye on, too. You know, just anecdotally, I mean, all the times I've uh, driven into the United States, I've typically found the U.S. border guards actually very pleasant. And it's more so the Canadian border guards when you're coming home who are a little bit less so. Um, but look, I mean, um, they, they have an important job. I, I get it. And, and their job is to help keep dangerous stuff and dangerous people out of Canada. So to that end, Canada Border Services agents have some power that police officers don't have, for example, when it comes to searching electronic devices. So a police officer can't just say, let me see your cell phone. I want to look through it. Yeah, typically, they would need a warrant for that kind of thing. But a border guard can. Right? A border guard can inspect an electronic device because that's part of their job. Just like someone might have a suitcase full of heroin, some might, uh, someone might have a laptop full of, you know, say, child pornography. And so they've got a job in, in trying to keep that out of the country. 
But then what about our rights when it comes to our privacy and how far border guards can go in searching our devices? If you're looking for something specific, that might be one thing. But if you're just on a fishing expedition and going through everything, well, given how much personal information we have on our electronic devices, there's a lot there for border agents to go through. There was a decision earlier this month from the Canadian, uh, from Canada's Privacy Commissioner, Danielle Terrier. Complaints from six Canadians whose devices were searched upon returning home from abroad. Now, while the commissioner accepts that border officers can search these devices, there are limits to that. And that in these cases, border guards went too far. For example, connectivity was not disabled. In one case, an officer improperly took photos of the content on a phone. Certain information relating to examination of digital devices was destroyed in two cases, despite the fact that it's supposed to be held on to. In all six cases, officers failed to record the indicators that led to the searches of the digital devices, which areas of the devices were accessed, or why those areas were searched. So there are some guidelines that are supposed to oversee all of this, but are those being followed? And do we need maybe the federal government to step in and provide some clarity in all of this, respecting the job that these agents have to do, also respecting the rights of Canadians? Well, this is something that the B.C. Civil Liberties Association has been following for some time. A couple of years ago, uh, they produced a guidebook for Canadians on knowing what their rights are at the border. You can find that at bccla.org. Uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all of this is Megan McDermott, uh, who's a staff counsel for the B.C. Civil, uh, Civil Liberties Association. Again, bccla.org. Megan, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. Now, this issue comes up a lot. In fact, uh, the BCCLA had released a, a guidebook a couple of years ago outlining for Canadians what what our rights are, what uh, what powers border services agents have. But why, why is this such an important issue? Uh, it's important because basically our life has modernized or progressed a lot more quickly than the law has. So there's so much personal information um, that can be stored on the average person's smartphone. Um, For some people, there's more information on their smartphone um, in terms of either even banking information, health data, intimate photos than might even be in their whole household. Um, However, under our customs laws about entry into the country where our um, customs and border officers are looking for contraband and obscene materials, uh, these electronic devices still are just treated as if it's a suitcase or uh, a bag of groceries in, in the back of your car. So basically the law and policy hasn't kept up at all with the way that uh, people coming in and out of our country are using their digital devices. And so that results in these very very um, very deep invasions of privacy for people. Um, and this report that came out is a result of, of six Canadians complaining. They were just on their way home from traveling and had their devices searched. Not just what was on the device, but what was that issue here was that um, the officers were looking at their like online activity. So it wasn't even the information that they're bringing with them. They, it, uh, the devices were hooked up to the internet and they could start looking at their social media, their banking information, their internet, all that kind of stuff. Well, and what's interesting, too, is because, as you say, there are some rules around the border and what's coming into the country that make this different. Because, you know, for example, a police officer, a law enforcement officer can't just demand that people hand over their devices, can't start searching a device without a warrant. Maybe people assume that that applies to border services uh, agents, but it's, it's a different situation, isn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Our, our, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that we have a lower expectation of privacy at the border. Um, and that's true. However, there's, it's not that there's no expectation of privacy. And that's basically how our electronic devices have been um, treated um, for the past couple of years. So uh, the privacy commissioner and also we had a House of Commons committee looked into this stuff about two years ago. And my organization, too, what a lot of us are just calling for is just an update to the law mm-hmm. so that you would take these electronic devices and at least put some kind of reasonable suspicion threshold. You know, you mentioned that the cops couldn't look at it, um, at it here. Um, they would need a warrant for the most part if you weren't doing anything. So it, it's very... Um, it's very, very different how they're treated at the border than anywhere else in Canada. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, it's kind of treated the same way as, as say, a suitcase might be. That someone's got a, a suitcase full of heroin, they're they're trying to smuggle that into the country. I guess the law kind of views digital devices the same way, right? If someone has child pornography uh, on an electronic device, that's basically treated the same. Yeah, yep. That you've got the heart of the issue right there. Um, but then again, as we know, our suitcases. Um, don't have portals that are open right. to our banks, our doctors, um, all of our friends and family. Uh, yeah, so it, it's just that uh, law and policy right now is really out of step with the way that we that we're using our devices and what we expect in terms of our own privacy. So in these complaints, for instance, um, in some of them, the the border officers were looking not just at their online banking information, but looking at like Facebook messages, WhatsApp messages, um, watching videos. um, And they weren't at all following any kind of policy that they had. So while the law doesn't have any kind of threshold for, for looking at these devices, CBSA policy at least says that you can you can just kind of start looking like a cursory search, you know, turn on the phone, look at it or the laptop. Um, and then if you start to pick up on little clues that that something's amiss and that they might have been lying about what they're bringing into the country, um, then you can start to do progressive searches. So on paper, at least, we're led to believe that the CBSA kind of restrains itself. But what the privacy commissioner found here is that they weren't even following their own policy. They just, you know, went for it. Yeah, so this is an important point because they, they do have powers, but those are not limitless powers. So in, in terms then of, of the privacy commissioner, what kind of a contribution is this then in, in helping us understand where those limits are and what those limits are? Well, for, for somebody like me, a lawyer who is monitoring this situation, I think this gives us um, a lot because, you know, first of all, it's a public rebuke of what the CBSA is doing. Because as it is, the law and policy is quite open for them like as i said before we want to kind of restrict the law a bit more so that it's more in line with what we expect about our privacy um but so even in the absence of those restrictions they're still not following their own policies and we don't get a lot of transparency from the cbsa in terms of what to expect and how they even conduct themselves how they investigate themselves all that kind of stuff so whenever there's an investigation like this it's 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 very enlightening so for instance um the, two years ago, the agency said that it was going to start collecting statistics about how many devices it searches. But then what I found through pouring over this is that they still don't have the, the, the IT systems to do that kind of stuff. So they're doing manual counts if they have to at all. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but they actually released, they 
um, released something to the media today about how many devices were searched. And they would not have done that whatsoever unless these six Canadians had filed this complaint. Um, so it sheds light. It, it kind of publicly embarrasses them and mm-hmm. pushes them to do what we would hope and expect them to do in the first place. Well, it was interesting. The uh, Office of the Public Safety Minister responding to this this um, this case, they said they are carefully reflecting on the commissioner's proposals. They, they've talked about introducing a bill that would create an independent review body uh, for the border agency. But that, that seems to fall short then of actually changing some of the laws. So what's your sense of what the government is prepared to do versus maybe what actually needs to be done? Yeah, well, in terms of the, um, you know, an oversight body that we've... <laughs> That should have been created, you know, like decades ago. Mm. So um, that would certainly be welcomed. But um, again, it just kind of shows how the agency and and those politicians in charge of it really aren't um, being proactive in terms of protecting the human rights of people coming across our borders. Um, uh, So a lot more transparency. I mean, the the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, they have really bad stories coming out about how they're treating people. However, if you go to their website... Um, you can see the policies that they're supposed to be using. They release numbers of how many devices they're searching. Um, they have a lot more clarity. They provide notification to people, like written notification, if they detain your device so that you know um, how you can find it in the future. The CBSA doesn't do things like that. So um, there's a lot of things the agency can do outside of law reform um, to foster more trust um, between their agents and the, the people that they're servicing. So um, hopefully, hopefully they're going to smarten up a bit. Um, basically, you know, this complaint goes to things even just like that they weren't taking proper notes, they weren't following their own procedure, they weren't properly trained. It's not, you know, these... It's kind of more boring, nuanced things um, that governance geeks like myself would look into. But, you know, it highlights, again, the bigger picture. Um, It it emphasizes that Canadians care about this stuff, um, that it's important. I'm really, really proud and impressed that six Canadians complained. Um, There's another uh, complaint that's being looked into as well um, that was referenced in, in this decision. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, basically, I would say like every hour of every day, there's really dynamic, interesting things happening in terms of privacy rights at the border. Um, and this is just one little window looking into it. Right. And you highlight something important that, you know, these these six Canadians, uh, you know, that they felt something, you know, had had not been done properly, that they had been wronged and that they filed a complaint. I think for, for a lot of Canadians, though, there's, you know, A, not really knowing what the rules are around all of this, and, and B, just that kind of natural deference that, that most of us show when it comes to law enforcement officials or border officials. Those can be intimidating conversations, you know, with border crossing guards, and if they start making demands, most Canadians will will, will go along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the big issues um, that keeps coming up, and it's in this complaint as well, is about uh, giving passwords when you're asked for it. Um, and when you're standing there in the moment, uh, and you know they're looking through your devices, even uh, you know, I'm a lawyer who looks into this stuff a lot, and it's even unclear to me what I can expect when I'm having those interactions. So I'm really impressed that just these people just thought something was off, you know, like just their gut instinct that these people should not be looking through um, Snapchat messages that they haven't even read themselves, you know, like they would have been downloaded um, 
after the person had last looked at them. So here's a stranger that you've never met before who even has weapons on them. And um, they're reading things from your friends or family that you haven't even seen. It's extremely intimidating. And there isn't even... they. There aren't even good oversight mechanisms for the CBSA. And a lot of Canadians don't even know that we have Office of the Privacy Commissioner. So um, I think this is incredible. Again, it's all anonymous. They don't even, like, list what ports of entry they were coming back to. Um, but I think these, these six people did an excellent service. Um, and so it's always good to try to hold government accountable when you can. Yeah, it is. Uh, part of the problem, too, is that if, if you're found to be obstructing a CBSA officer, you, you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. If you are seen to be uh, not cooperating, that, that can raise suspicion. So it, it's, it's a double-edged sword, I think, for Canadians and you know, making sure that they're, they're asserting their rights, but also either not wanting to make their situation worse or, or even find themselves in some serious trouble. Yeah, what we've been telling people is that if you're asked for a password, um, for the most part, comply. Because what you're risking, like worst case scenario, and this has happened in Canada, where people are arrested for obstruction of an officer, um, simply because they won't give a password over to an email or to the device itself. Um, But I think practically what happens if people were to get stubborn um, and try to assert their privacy rights is you would lose access to your uh, device for days on end, possibly months on end. And um, once your device isn't in your possession anymore, um, the agency can do, you know, they can basically clone the entire hard drive. So um, what this means is for somebody like me, even I'm very compliant at the border because the law really isn't on our side right now. And while the CBSA says that it has some policy to try to mitigate this, and to try to respect our privacy, um, as this complaint has shown, they're not even following their own policies. Well, hopefully, hopefully now that they've been embarrassed, they're going yeah. to be um, behaving differently. Um, so this is why it's so great that, you know, you're doing an interview about it. There's been a lot of news stories because this is really important stuff. Yeah, it is. Uh, and much more on this at BCC. Uh, la.org including we mentioned this uh, guidebook it's called the electronic devices privacy handbook a short guide to your rights at the board you can download that again bccla.org megan thank you so much for joining us here today really appreciate your insight on this yeah, it's a pleasure have a great day all right you as well there you go that's megan mcdermott with the bc civil liberties association so some thoughts on you know what what you need to know and what your rights are at the border maybe where there's a need for some additional clarity like even the question of whether an officer can ask for a password it's not entirely clear whether you are legally obligated to provide it. And that, that seems like a pretty big question just in and of itself. You know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? I mean, they get the metric system. They wouldn't know what the f- a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it a royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. I suspect a lot of Canadians watch that movie and say, wait a sec, we have the metric system and I know what a quarter pounder is. Maybe that's because we have kind of a, a unique mishmash of both in this country. That we embarked on a process of switching to the metric system and then we kind of stopped about halfway through. You know, we don't often mark the anniversary of federal white papers, but I think it is significant. 50 years ago this month, January of 1970 marked the release of the white paper that launched us down this road, the white paper on metric conversion in Canada. 
stated that a single coherent measurement system based on metric units should be used for all measurement purposes, including legislation. Uh, The law was changed the following year, and the rest, as they say, is history. So why why did we embark on this path? How do we measure the costs and benefits of something like this? And why did we stall halfway through? Well, uh, joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Werner Antweiler is a professor with the Sauter School of Business at UBC and wrote an interesting uh, history on this a few years ago on his own personal website, WernerAntweiler.ca. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thank you for having me on your program. Uh, so why, why did Canada decide that we needed to make the switch to metric? What were the arguments 50 years ago? Yeah, there were really two arguments that were standing out. Um, one was that uh, there was a whole worldwide movement to adopt the metric system uh, universally, and therefore we would benefit from standardization. So when you actually engage in trade with another country, you were sure you were using the same kind of measures, everything would fit, and everybody would be using uh, the, same, the same numbers that would be immediately understood everywhere. The other uh, argument uh, is, is really one about uh, decimalization. That is that uh, uh, some of the traditional measures, uh, there were used uh, in units of 6 and 12. Now, for example, Britain was still using pounds and shillings and pence, and they went to a metric system with just uh, pounds and, and pennies. And uh, so we, we had a lot of these systems where um, they didn't really uh, easily uh, get into our modern-day computers and uh, systems where we store information. So using a decimal system is very appealing because it's, uh, it's very logical. You can scale it up. You can go from centimeters to meters to kilometers. You can go from uh, from uh, kilowatt hours to megawatt hours, and all that made a, a lot of sense uh, to to standardize uh, the the system and um, and facilitate also international trade. So there was really the argument that it would really help us with international trade and opening up a commerce. Did we did we think at the time? Was there a belief that the U.S. was also going to change, and might it have impacted our decision if we knew that the U.S was ultimately never going to change. Yes. So the U.S. was actually embarking on the same, uh, the same changes, and in part they did. There are some institutions in the U.S. actually that have wholly embraced the metric systems, like NASA. When they send people uh, into space now, well, um, this is one, uh, one uh, agency, one government agency that's actually very confidently applying metric measures because they learned this the hard way that when you use uh, uh, this not consistently, you can end up with uh, sending an orbiter to the Mars and it's getting... Uh, sucked into the atmosphere and burning up there instead of uh, orbiting the planet. So they, uh, they have learned that you know, there's great value of having international standards. Mm-hmm. But uh, here in Canada, we've always sort of gone the path of, um, you know, we kind of have to square the circle. We have to deal with our big trading partners, the United States, on one hand, but we also want to be open to the world and, uh, and basically align with uh, what is really the dominant international standard, except here in North America. So the, um, the, the difficulty for Canadians has been sort of to really um, basically sit on both sides of the fence. And uh, that means Canadians are uniquely able to you know, think metric and not metric at the same time. So when I uh, hear people talking about Fahrenheit, uh, temperatures in the United States, and of course uh, I, I'm uh, fully metric here in Canada with temperatures, and I can make sense of Fahrenheit, and of course I can make sense of metric too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I suspect the, you know, the American influence looms large over Canada, which probably explains, I, I think, to a great extent why we have kind of this mishmash or this hybrid. 
Yes, exactly. The U.S. is a big holdout because this is one huge market, and they figured, well, if you we don't want to change, well, we are a large enough a market that we can we can maintain our own standard internally, and and then trading partners have to kind of uh, adapt to that. So Canada is kind of caught in the middle. On one hand, now we are a small open economy; we want to trade with all the world, but then we have this one big trading partner south of the border that's not using metric measures. So we we kind of have to reconcile that that uh, we kind of ask uh, U.S. companies that are exporting to Canada to put metric labels on their products, but when we ship goods uh, south the border, we have to put uh, imperial measures on it. And of course, it can be quite confusing uh, when you look at say a ton. A ton can be a short ton or a long ton. Yeah. It can also be like if you look at a mile, it can be uh, a statutory mile, a British mile, or a nautical mile. So these these terms are also um, not necessarily easily standardized uh, outside the metric system. So Canada still has some way to go because in, in practice, um, we use uh, metric measures for things like temperatures, uh, the liters of gasoline we put into our cars. But then when it comes to, to food items or say a cup of coffee, it's uh, 12 ounces of coffee or a, a pound of ham. So it, it's very interesting how we um, is almost seamlessly uh, can switch from one system to the other here in Canada. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, there, there were obviously costs involved in making this switch. Uh, in terms of the benefits, that's probably harder to, to quantify. Maybe some of the expected benefits weren't fully realized. I mean, is it possible 50 years later to, to do a, a meaningful cost-benefit analysis? It's really hard to do because these are long-term processes. Uh, companies yeah. don't uh, adjust like in a month, but it takes many years for trade patterns to change. And so it's very difficult to quantify the, the true effect of metrication. But what we do know, uh, whenever we introduce standards in, in commerce, and the International Standardization Organization is doing this for many things in the commercial world, whenever we use these standards, it really helps streamline processes and, uh, and also the way we handle data in an increasingly information-driven economy. So standardization is extremely useful and compatibility with uh, the dominant standard is extremely useful. And uh, when, we, when we look at this at the microeconomic level, we find studies that really support that notion. Um, but of course, at the uh, uh, level of the entire economy, it's really hard to put a, like a billion dollar number on and how much do we gain from, from metrication. Now, it seems quite likely that, that the United States is going to stick with its status quo, and I suspect that maybe it's quite likely that we'll stick with our status quo. Do, do you see us going any further down the metrication path? Uh, perhaps a little bit. I think um, we have adopted the metric system, and we allow the imperial system to be used as an alternative for commerce. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, in all uh, use uh, where government is concerned, we should be consequently metric. Our education in high schools and in universities should be consequently metric and, and, and not actually uh, use uh, uh, essentially outdated measures. So wherever we can, we should really put metric first and put imperial second. Um, of course, um, there are some uh, sectors where um, we have actually adopted uh, non-metric measures internationally, for example, in aeronautics. Uh, planes still measure altitude in feet, and everybody in the world does that because it is the dominant standard. Yeah. So this will not change, and uh, some industries are particularly difficult to change, such as construction, where uh, two by four is still going to be two by four, or not a, not a five by ten. So this is something where, um, because of our um, uh, connection to trade with the United States, uh, change will be really, really hard. 
Well, I do wonder if there's a generational difference. I mean, you know, boomers versus millennials say that, that perhaps younger Canadians are probably have embraced metric to a greater extent than, than previous generations. Absolutely. Is that fair to say? Yeah. It, is, it is absolutely a generational change. It's basically what you grew up with, what you come, kind of feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why metrication was uh, opposed in the 1970s was that a lot of people felt uneasy switching to a new system of measurement because they had grown up with, with feet and inches and they had grown up with, with, with pounds and other measures. Uh, and so switching is a mental cost. That is something that people would uh, not kind of resist, um, uh, but uh, when you grow up with it, it's natural to you. Like if you grow up with the metric system, it is the, the most natural system for you to use and express yourself in. And so now we have educated uh, a whole generation of Canadians in the use of the metric system. We think in, in Celsius and we think in meters and kilometers. And, and so for, for this generation, it feels this is the normal way of, uh, of measuring. And, um, but we haven't gone completely metric simply because, well, um, we still travel to the United States, we do business with the United States, and we kind of have to be fluent in their measures as well. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Professor Antweil, appreciate your input on this. Thanks so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. All right, that's uh, Werner Antweiler's professor of the Sauter School of Business, UBC. Uh, his own uh, personal website, WernerAntweiler.ca. And yeah, I uh, had a piece a few years ago on Canada's incomplete metrication. We certainly made a lot of changes, but in some ways, you know, we, we fell short, I think, of what was envisioned at the time. And part of that is just up to, you know, the, the personal preferences of individual Canadians or maybe individual industries and what they were comfortable with. You know, like Fahrenheit's a great example. I think we're at the point now where most Canadians, for the most part, like I say, there are certainly some exceptions. But if we all of a sudden start giving our weather forecast in Fahrenheit, a lot of people wouldn't know what we were talking about. But the idea of baking something in the oven and setting your oven to a Celsius temperature, we would have no idea what that would be, right? (laughs) That would seem so foreign to us. When it comes to describing the weather outside, it's the complete opposite. So some of it just, it's those weird quirks. Uh, i got a text here that says, Rob, uh, regarding the metric system, if you live rurally, it's really not used. As a rancher, we never talk in kilometers unless it's on the highway between two cities. On rural grid roads, it's always in miles based on the historical Dominion land surveys of road allowances in one and two mile interv- intervals. Also, egg commodities such as hay, cows, calves, never sold in kilograms or metric tons. It's always based on pounds or imperial tons. So likely a lot of this influenced by U.S. markets. 403-974-8255 is our number here, 974-TALK. Another text here says, back in 1984, when I wrote my final exam of my apprenticeship in carpentry, it was imperial measurements. But all the lessons we were taught were in metric. Should have seen the expression on everyone's face when we sat down to write it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.